Hey, so I want to make sure everybody in the podcast world of Leading Saints is aware of our upcoming virtual conference that's happening, at least it starts on July 25th, and it's called Recovering Saints. And we do a deep dive into leadership in the context of ministering to individuals who are struggling with a drug addiction or a substance abuse addiction, right? And <clears throat> this is something that many leaders are going to face at some point in their in their uh, you know administration or in their leadership or uh, even in your personal life with your children with loved ones that uh, fall into an addiction with with drugs or a substance and uh, there's so much to unpack and consider here so many resources out there so please this is a great way for you to support leading saints is to attend our free virtual conference that's right they're free you just go to leadingsaints.org/recovering and uh, put your email in and you're registered for the virtual conference and uh, such valuable information. I think I have about 15 different presentations that we've recorded. They'll be available f- uh, during the, the conference to watch from anywhere in the world, and uh, you your life will be blessed by this. I want to sort of uh, give you a quick glimpse of general topics that we're going to talk about, then share with you one more thing. But um, in th- these presentations, they cover things like understanding what an addict needs from his or her church community, how to minister to loved ones when they keep making poor choices related to, to addiction, uh, how, how do rehabs work, and should we even look at those as a resource? How do, uh, how do we best leverage the addiction recovery program, right? ARP, it's out there. Uh, some stakes use it better than others. How do we? How do recovering addicts carry on in life after with fulfillment after they've overcome their addiction? Uh, how? Uh, let me see. I'm getting lost in my words here. What happens when addicts end up in jail? What role does trauma play in drug addiction? How to best minister to families of addicts? What are the medical implications of drug addiction? What church resources are available out there already to help leaders? So that's just a quick snapshot glance of the different topics. Uh, and again, a great way for you to support Leading Saints is to go register at leadingsaints.org slash recovering. It's free. We would love for you to share it. And uh, just to wrap it up, just to give you a feeling of the the spirit of this conference, uh, we have gathered a, a handful uh, or more of stories from recovering addicts and just how the gospel and leaders bless them, help them through this struggle. So to start out, I want to share with you Lindsay's story. And uh, we're going to post this video as well on the landing page if you want to watch the video. But uh, phenomenal, inspiring story of Lindsay and her recovering and how the, the gospel helped her there. So uh, please go to leadingsaints.org slash recovering and you can register for free. And it starts July. <laughs> I'll say that word. It starts July 25th and uh, jump in. Here we go. Lindsay's story. I remember the first time that I tried Coke. I remember feeling something that I had never felt before. And I knew that I wanted to feel that way for the rest of my life and that I would do anything that I could to to continue to feel that way. I was about 24, maybe 25. I was living in Southern California and I was dating a girl that um, introduced me to that, that had all those connections. We had a great apartment on the beach, new cars. Um, I had a really good job. And so it 
those things enabled, I guess, the spiral downward a lot faster. I was recently divorced from a man that I had married. He'd been baptized and um, converted in a year after our civil marriage, we were sealed in the temple. I thought that that would make me feel better, make me feel like I belonged and that I was doing something right because I never felt like I fit in anywhere. Um, at school, I jumped from group to group and um, never had any problems with bullying or anything like that, but I just didn't fit. And I wasn't interested in dating boys or having anything to do with them, except uh, maybe if we wanted to go surfing together or something like that. And so when I uh, met this guy, um, we had so much fun together and I just didn't know. And it wasn't until um, almost two years later that I realized that I finally had a word for what I felt and I'm gay. And as I recited that in my head where it just kept running and repeating, I'm gay, I'm gay, I'm gay. There was a simultaneous overwhelming relief that I finally had a word to identify what it was. And I was also scared to death. It went against everything that, um, you know, that I was taught. I'm 42 now and during my time in Indian Women's in the 90s, we didn't talk about those things. We didn't talk about, we didn't talk about being gay. We didn't talk about any other options other than getting married and having kids. We, the, the talks on the words of wisdom, on the word of wisdom was um, superficial and we just all knew that we weren't supposed to drink or do drugs, but we never discussed why. Why are those things so important? And maybe it's because no one was around to tell the people who were teaching the lessons and they didn't know anybody. The visibility then was so almost next to nothing. I didn't have anybody to speak to about the things that I felt, nor was there anybody like me that I knew of at least. And so when I tried that first line, um, it had been a while. Um, I had tried to drink and, and, and smoke uh, smoke pot and those were fun but um, nothing gave me the release like that did and so I went on from coke and then that trend, that uh, quickly went to meth our apartment on the beach was uh, full all the time, all day, all night of the most random assortment of characters you could ever imagine it wasn't safe, but as long as someone had drugs, then they were welcome in there. The severity of my addiction wasn't realized by me or my family or anybody else um, until uh, much later on. I'd already lost everything. I'd already lost my apartment, car, job, license, trust, you name it. I lost it. The details of each of our stories are different, but 
they're mostly the same. And so after a disastrous family trip to Utah, I went to a private rehab in Michigan. I was there for three months. And the first thing they do is to put you in a withdrawal house. And it's just like it sounds. It's so you can withdraw. The four most agonizing, miserable days of my entire life. I imagine that's what hell feels like. Being at the bottom and every time I woke up, I wish I hadn't. I stayed in my clothes. I couldn't even get up to shower. And it was miserable. I've realized that misery is different than sadness or disappointment or frustration because misery is, is self-imposed. I chose to take those first drugs and I chose to keep using them. And at some point, I made the choice to give up my agency and let the drugs control me. Everything that I did was to keep using, to get more at whatever cost. And eventually, the cost caught up to me. Um, I was getting ready for work one time and um, back, at, back at home and um, during my hometown. And the knock came on the door and there were two officers there. They arrested me and I went to jail. Um, I was charged with, uh, with two felonies. I spent 122 days in the county jail. It was the most humbling experience of my entire life. And it's been one of the most moving experiences where I developed compassion and understanding on things that I would have never known and met and, and talked to people that I would have only probably avoided on the street. Between all that and then being sent to a court-ordered sober living, it would take me another three years to get clean and sober. It was a miracle. I had been drinking on February 12, 2013, and I had my last drink. I do. I'm, I'm in sober living, and my friend dropped me off in front of a a small kind of convenience or liquor store. And usually I would just cross the street, walk the three doors down and go pass out in my bunk bed. And mind you, the, all the women in the there smoked. And so they'd always walk down because it was honestly faster to walk than to drive. And the director never drove anybody even though they begged her. But that day, my friend pulled up and I was in the passenger seat. And just a second or two later, car pulls up beside me and my sober living director is driving. She takes one look at me, says, get in the car. She never drove. She never, and to pull up right next to me, to see me the way that, just take one glance and know that I was not, not okay. The next five days were horrible. I had to withdraw from 
so many things. The withdrawal in, in rehab was also And so from February 13th, 2013, I've been clean and sober. It has been the most difficult thing I've ever done and will ever do. Had to learn to live my life all over in different ways and being comfortable in my skin. And it also has been the most beautiful time of my life as well. And having to sit with myself and realizing that I could not do this, I thought of the story of Peter when he starts to walk on the water and then the waves become difficult and he starts to drown. We all know the story in the scriptures and when Peter starts to drown, he asks for the Lord's help. And the Savior immediately reaches his hand up to Peter and pulls him up. He doesn't wait. He doesn't hesitate. He doesn't lecture him. He doesn't make him be under the water a little bit more. But he immediately reaches out his hand. And that is what he did for me. He's brought me to this point because I can't do this myself and I never will be able to. We're often told that we're never given more than we can handle. And I think that's absolutely false. <laughs> I think we are given things that we can't handle on our own every single day. But it's when we ask for the Lord's help that he reaches down his hand and that we can do anything. There's a quote from a book called Night. And the author, um, who has spent time in a concentration camp, sees a, um, a boy slowly hanging. And while a crowd of people are forced to watch this boy slowly die. And as he's hanging there, someone in the crowd remarks, where is God now? And he said the answer was right in front of them. And I've thought so much about that. Where has God been when I was um, in the incredible situations I've had in my life? And I don't mean incredible as, as good. And then I think about that. He has always been right there. Hanging and uh, experiencing exactly what I experienced. And um, not just in a general sense. He doesn't know what it's, he knows what it's like to withdraw. Not just in a general sense, but he knows what it feels like for me. For me, Lindsay. I have this, uh, this, very distinct image in my head. I had the bottom bunk in my withdrawal house and rehab and uh, 
some lying there curled up, not wanting to wake up. I see from kind of a above, I mean, someone's standing over me. I can see myself on the edge of the bed, curled up. I can see the Savior next to me. Never left me. He already knows me, he already knows what it feels like. He's never forgotten me or forsaken me. That's been my doing if I've ever felt like that. Because immediately, he immediately reached out his hand as soon as I asked. same author who wrote about the boy being hanged also said something about his faith said, my faith is battered and wounded but it's here there's no better way to explain that my faith has been battered it has been wounded but it is here and it is scarred and it's toughened, and it has gone through things that I know most people don't. My testimony of the atonement, my Savior's love for me, the miracle of forgiveness has been formed in a way that is probably similar to that of the refiner's fire. I don't know what's happening, and it looks like a shapeless gob. And yet, the end result has been beautiful. And it still continues to be beautiful. My life. What I have today is... Is only the result of his grace, his mercy, and him blessing me in ways that I do not deserve. In February, I'll have 10 years. And I've gotten there one moment, one day, one hour, whatever it took at a time, and trusting him. It did not come quickly. But just like he promised, the blessings have come. I am so blessed. I am so incredibly grateful for the atonement all the, the holes that it fills in and all the wrongs that it makes right. I love him.
grateful to be able to be a person who can do his will. Every day I have an opportunity to reach out to somebody to share my testimony, whether it be to hand um, some socks and a $5 bill to the the guy I know um, this by my house. Whether it's people at church who I've never heard of. <laughs> Someone uh, embodying so many of the things that I do. I don't know if it's every day that you meet a, um, a gay Mormon former addict, ex-felon with a philosophy degree. I am grateful to my savior. Here's and answers my prayers. And I know that he can do the same for you without question. you need more confirmation, please. I would love to talk to you. Because I want you to know that true. I say these things um, with more gratitude and humility and appreciation than I can ever and love than I can express. I say these things in the name of my friend, Jesus Christ. Amen. There you have it. Wow. So inspiring. Again, go to leadingsaints.org slash recovering. Uh, link is in the show notes to make it really easy on you and register for free to capture these inc- remarkable presentations that are going to bless the life of anybody, regardless of how close they are to uh, somebody's uh, you know struggle with addiction. So leadingsaints.org slash recovering. We'll see you on July 25th.